Hello, everyone. Welcome to Fair Voice. I'm Hannah Sirach, your host. Fair Voice is Fair Mormon's podcast, and today we're going to keep talking about the Bible. As I mentioned, we're doing a series on the Bible where we're going to have some interviews with different professors, different scholars, different people about their work on the Bible, their research on the Bible, their understanding of the Bible. But first, we're going to do a Q&A session with me about the Bible. So I had you guys submit some questions and I had some friends write some questions too. And we have a, a good number of questions to cover through this episode. This episode will be another sort of introductory episode, but it'll be more specific than the last one. So we'll talk about some interesting points uh, as it pertains to Latter-day Saint views on the Bible, my own personal views on the Bible as Some of you know, I am getting my degree in comparative studies. This is a master's degree. I graduated from BYU already with a bachelor's degree, and I did Latin and Greek. I took a ton of Greek New Testament classes. I took, I I think I took seven Greek New Testament classes when I was at Brigham Young University, and my thesis focuses a lot on early Christianity and other things like that. So super excited to be able to talk to you about the Bible today. But first, we're going to go we're going to go back to the Q&A segment that we do every single episode. So just a reminder, you can ask me questions and you can submit them to h s e a r i a c at fairmormon.org. That is h s e a r i a c at fairmormon.org. Ask me your questions there and I'll be happy to answer them. I get a lot of really interesting questions, so we'll keep working through the pile. Um, We're still from the first week that I did this and questions keep coming, but don't worry, your question will be answered eventually. So we're going to start off with the first question that I was asked today. Um, I was asked this question way, way back last month and I'm really excited to answer it. And the question is, What is your favorite story from the Book of Mormon? This is a fantastic question. I love the Book of Mormon. There's a lot of really great stories within the Book of Mormon. My favorite story, however, from the Book of Mormon is actually Enos. I love the story of Enos. So I'll just recount it really quickly, really briefly for you. Enos was out hunting and then decided that he wanted to pray and he prays all day. And he he prays a very beautiful prayer where he first obtains a forgiveness for his sins and then he's able to establish some charity for his people. And I really like this story for a couple of different reasons. Um, One of the reasons I really like this story is because he first obtains a forgiveness of sins and he's very sincere about this. I like what he says in verse Uh, verse four, and my soul hungered and I kneeled down before my maker and I cried unto him in mighty prayer and supplication for mine own soul. And all the day long did I cry unto him and yea, when the night came, I did still raise my voice high that it reached the heavens. I love this particular section. I like the idea of wrestling with with God in prayer, being so in tune and so in touch with prayer that it is a very sincere and genuine expression of faith. And I also really like what the Lord says in verse 8. And he said unto me, because of thy faith in Christ, whom thou hast never before heard nor seen. And if we pay attention to the sequence of the prayer, as I mentioned, Enos then eventually prays for other people. He gets charity for them. And this charity is very deep and sincere. I like this idea a lot. I think I've seen this in my own life. I'm able to have more charity for people when I am forgiven of my sins, when I am clean. And I I just gain a lot from this particular story in the Book of Mormon. So thank you for asking that question. The answer is the story of Enos. I love the story of Enos. But let's now dive into questions about the Bible. I got a lot of really interesting questions. We're, we're going to run this based on time. I prepared a lot of answers for these. So this should be a very interesting episode today. One of the first questions that I was asked was about the documentary hypothesis and what my take on the documentary hypothesis is. This is a very fascinating question for a number of reasons because you're going to have a lot of dissent on the documentary uh, documentary hypothesis, especially within believing communities. Let's first define the documentary hypothesis and then I'll give what the church's official position is and then I'll give also what my position is. Um, I 
spoiler alert, they don't really differ all that much. So what we we have the first five books of the Bible, okay? This is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This is known as the Torah or the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is amazing. And the tradition of the Bible holds that it was written by one author. That author would be Moses. However, certain scholars posit that there are multiple different sources. These sources are called Yehovist or Yahwehist. Um, and that obviously refers to Jehovah or Elohist. Um, and then there's also the priestly sources, the Deuteronomy sources. So essentially, the documentary hypothesis is this belief that rather rather this hypothesis, not necessarily a belief, a hypothesis that the Torah does not come from one author, but instead comes from several different authors. The best way to describe this is you have um, the source Jehovahist, you have Elohist, you have a couple different Deuteronomy sources, the priestly sources, and then also um, a redactor who changes some of the sources and then the Deuteronomy history. Um, to make this sound a lot more simpler, there are multiple different authors for the Pentateuch. This is the scholarly position that most people have. I know a lot of different Christian scholars who argue with this, but most biblical scholars I know hold to what is called the documentary hypothesis as I just explicated there too. Now, what does the church say about the documentary hypothesis? This is the most important question. The church's position seems to be that there is no position. I have not been able to find an authoritative source that says that the church believes in one way or another. I will say that most people who tend to be religious people tend to hold to the idea that it is written by Moses. I will say that um, everything within the King James Version that you have in your in your scriptures is canonized. So even the headings of scripture are canonized, which is really interesting. And we should do a we should do um, not a lesson. We should do a podcast on this later because there are some beliefs that actually come from section headings that are canonized. And I think that that's very fascinating. Regardless of that, um, above the above each of the five books in the Pentateuch or in the Torah, it has the first book of Moses called Genesis, the third book of Moses called Leviticus, etc. So we still identify them as the books of Moses. Um, not much has been said about authorship by the church on an authoritative level. That is not surprising to me, to be honest with you. Um, I personally, this is a personal belief. I, I explained this a bit in the last episode, but this is my take on the documentary hypothesis and just my take on biblical authorship generally. I'm not as concerned with the idea that certain things differ, therefore the author is different. The way that I view authorship is a bit more nuanced. Um, so I believe that Moses, all of Moses's ideas are within the Torah. Does that mean that Moses sat down and wrote every single book of the Torah? Not necessarily. He could have, and I'd be fine with that. He could have not, and I'd also be fine with that. I, I think what Moses probably did is have people who follow him around, i.e. disciples, and they write down ideas for him. This is also how I look at New Testament texts as, texts as well, because I think that that seems to be a good marriage between a faithful perspective and also a scholarly perspective. And I also think it, it is a, an acceptable scholarly perspective because a lot of the content that we talk about within the Pentateuch is harmonious. And I, I'm more concerned with the harmonious content than I am necessarily with whether or not someone's style um, differed greatly. I would say that Moses probably didn't have that much time to write down things by hand, just like Jesus didn't necessarily write down things by hand, but we still consider it Jesus's words, right? So I, I think that that's the best way to approach this. Of, of course, there's a degree of skepticism. I, I still think that they're written by Moses ultimately in the sense that all of the ideas within those books come from Moses the person. And I actually do believe that people like Moses, Abraham, 
Adam, Eve, I believe that they are literal people. I don't hold to the idea that there was different people, um, sorry, not different people, that they did not exist and that we, that, that, that they are legendary figures. I believe in the literal, I believe Moses was a literal person and Abraham and Adam and Eve were literal people. So that definitely influences my beliefs greatly. That's my answer to that question. So to sum that up, documentary hypothesis is this idea that Moses did not write the entire um, Pentateuch, that there are multiple different authors for it. The church's response to that is there is no real response to that yet. Um, that's not something that we have been revealed. The closest answer we can come to is that they're still called the books of Moses. So I'd say most Latter-day Saints presume traditional authorship. I presume traditional authorship with the nuance that Moses did not have to physically write all of the books to be considered the author of the books. Next up was a similar question, but this was about the New Testament. So the question that was asked to me was, do you believe in the Q source document? So let's talk about the Q source document. I'm going to totally butcher how to say this, um, but Q stands for Quelle. That is a German word that means source. I don't know German. The only modern language I know besides English is Samoan, which is very odd and very strange. No, I did not serve a mission in Samoa. I actually didn't even serve a mission. I just know Samoan for fun. But regardless of that. So German word, quelle, meaning source. And this is a hypothetical source. We don't actually have a physical source that is called Q. Q is is this source that people hypothesize as a way to make, it, make sense of the fact that Mark, Matthew, and Luke all have shared material. What is meant by that? A lot of the logia or the sayings in Matthew, Luke, and Mark the actual sayings of Jesus, mind you, like when it says Jesus said that, a lot of these sayings are very similar. They're similar to, in both content, but also in structure. There are a couple grammatical changes for these changes, for these sayings. In some instances, especially with Mark, Mark's verb choices will be simpler verbs. Mark does not like to use more than present tense and aorist tense verbs. Aorist refers to the aspect of a verb. This is a one-time action that happened in the past. That's how you define aorist. Regardless of that, there are some grammatical differences within the sayings, but the content is very, very similar. The grammar is very, very similar. So scholars hypothesize that there is this source called Q. Q would have been a hypothetical written collection of Jesus saying, similar to the Gospel of Thomas, if you're familiar with the Gospel of Thomas, not exactly the Gospel of Thomas. The Gospel of Thomas is a fun text to read, but not all of the sayings are correct, especially not the last one. Um, and if you know what I'm talking about, I hope that made you chuckle just a little bit. But Q assumes what is called Mark in priority. We talked about this a bit. The idea that Mark was written first, then Matthew, then Luke. There are a bunch of different hypotheses about whether or not Q existed, whether or not Q was um, sayings or whatever. Um, the reason for Q is um, large parallels like in Matthew 6, 24 and Luke 16, 13, which have 27 and 28 Greek words that are exactly the same, etc., there are commonalities within the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain. There are different um, literary devices that we see that are similar. And another case for Q is also that Luke talks about how, in verses 1 to 4 in chapter 1, which we'll just read right now, but he talks about how he looks at other sources. So this is what Luke says. For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first to write unto thee in order, O most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein, the, wherein thou hast been instructed, end quote. 
there are a couple important things to highlight here. Um, he talks about how many other people have written down accounts. He also talks about how he is working from eyewitness accounts. A very common belief um, among scholars is that Luke, Luke and Jesus, Luke and Jesus's account comes from his mother Mary, and that's one of the eyewitnesses that people often cite when they talk about this particular account. Regardless of whether or not that happened, I personally think it did. The, the question that was asked to me is, what is the church's position on Q and what is my position on Q? There are a couple of different things we need to talk about with this. This is very similar to what I said in the last one. The church doesn't really, at least in my knowledge, and if I'm wrong, please correct me and I'll make a correction, but I did spend some time looking for this. It does not seem that the church has an official position on the source Q. My particular position is a bit different. I actually do believe in a Q source. I do think that there are other gospels that were not canonized. And this fits in with my Platonism. That's probably why I like it. But I think that there is a source Q that existed that Jesus himself wrote down and that our gospels work from that source. So I don't think it's necessarily Jesus's sayings. I actually hold that it is Jesus's own journal, essentially, would be what I would say the Q source would be. Obviously, this is a hypothetical source, so I am working from a hypothetical here, but there doesn't necessarily need to be a Q source. Um, I, I tend to actually hold to a lot of traditional authorship with the New Testament. I am first and foremost a believer, and I do think that the idea that we can suppose that the tradition is wrong in favor of other authors is a little bit silly. Even if there are other authors, that's totally fine. But at the same time, we're talking about something that was written down more than 2,000 years ago in the case of the Hebrew Bible and a little under 2,000 years ago in the case of the Greek New Testament. So obviously we don't know as much about authorship as the people did at the time. So I tend to hold to traditional authorship because that's what contemporary individuals thought about the authorship of the Bible. So I take their word for it. That's just my approach. There are a lot of valid approaches to this. This is just my approach. The church doesn't really seem to have a particular official position. Many believing members, this is at least anecdotal and also just from reading a lot of conference talks. Many my, my understanding is that most people also believe in traditional authorship who are Latter-day Saints. Doesn't mean you have to. That's just the majority position as I have at least seen it. The next question that was asked was, Hannah, there are a lot of people who will say that the Bible is a highly corrupt text. How would you respond to this? This is a good question. My response is that I do think that the Joseph Smith translation, which was never, at least in my understanding, completed in the sense that it was not edited necessarily perfectly, etc., but mostly complete. Um, the Joseph Smith translation in my opinion, corrects the vast majority of mistakes that could have been made. So I don't think saying that we don't have a perfect Bible is necessarily problematic. I think the Bible that we do have is fairly compact. Most changes that occur within the Bible throughout manuscripts are not what we call meaningful changes. And I talked about this a bit earlier, but meaningful changes are changes that have theological import. So when you're looking at a variety of different manuscripts, that you're going to see different verses for each verse. So if you're reading, say, Luke 1, verse 1, you might see that there are, I'm not sure if there's a variance in this verse. I didn't look at this one for the purposes of this podcast. Just an example. You might see that there is a word chi in one place. Chi means and. And there's not a word chi in a different manuscript in the same place. So you're going to see a lot of variants like this that are not necessarily that of that much importance theologically, but they might make the text seem more or less clear. These are not meaningful variants. This is the vast majority of variants within the New Testament, and just the vast majority of variants within texts generally is that you'll see a lot of instances where the meaning might change slightly, 
but not enough to change the actual theological content of the verse. But when it changes the theological content of the verse, there are a few of those. Those are important to look at. I think the majority of those, in my humble opinion, can be argued to be either included or excluded. And we have sufficient evidence to have an informed opinion on this. We have a lot of manuscripts for the Bible. We have a lot of fragmentary manuscripts, a lot of extant manuscripts, a lot of different traditions. So I, I would say that my personal opinion is I don't really worry about the Bible being that corrupt. I, I personally think that the changes that a lot of people made um, were not nefarious monks, as I like to call it, nefarious monks up in their little monasteries trying to purposefully change things to confuse people. I really think if you look at a lot of the changes that are made in different manuscripts, it's when a scribe forgets to write a word or when a scribe tries to make something more clear by expounding upon something or by changing the word order so that way it makes more sense. Because you have to keep in mind that we're seeing a Greek dialect change and you're seeing also Hebrew dialect changes as you progress in time, these languages did not stay stagnant in a similar way to how English doesn't stay stagnant, right? So if you're talking about English, let's say 50 years ago, did people walk around and say, walk around and say dude and bro all the time? I don't really think so. Maybe they did. I don't know. Um, they might have said it, but we certainly have some words that we say that are unique to our language, that are unique to our time. We have slang words, right? We also have a different way of speaking than they did, say, 200 years ago. We, for example, no longer say thou and thee and words like that. Thou and thee, by the way, are, this is, this is a fun question to ask your family members. Is thou the formal form? Most people would say, yeah, that was the formal. It's actually the informal. The informal in a language almost always drops out. So that, even though it sounds fancier to us, is actually the informal form of the verb, uh, sorry, of the word. So regardless of that little tangent, I personally don't think that you have to worry too much about the Bible accuracy. I think the Bible is as accurate as we could possibly have it, especially with the Joseph Smith translation. But let's talk about a story that is very familiar to a lot of us that might not be as authentic as we think it is. I actually still take it as an inspired story, but we're going to talk about the, the story of the woman caught in adultery. So this story we see in John 7, um, and this is the story that we have read probably a half dozen times. Um, many of us is the story of the woman caught in adultery and i'm just going to to read it so it starts in john 7 and then it goes into john 8 technically it's gonna this is very strange but technically most people start it at john 7 53 um so and every man went unto his house Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus swooped, stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted himself up and said unto him and said unto them, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again, he swooped down and wrote it on the ground. And when they had heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted him up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are, are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, no man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. This particular set of scriptures is very familiar to a lot of us. However, a lot of 
analysis has been done on Greek manuscripts of the Gospel of John, and there has been this claim made that this was not a part of the original Gospel of John. Even some Christian scholars will say that this particular passage is not a part of the Gospel of John. However, we see an attestation of it um, by St. Augustine in the early 400s, which is a pretty early attestation. Some people actually put this passage in the Gospel of Luke as as opposed to the Gospel of John. So this is an example of a tricky variant to solve because the manuscript evidence points towards it not necessarily being original, but other people have cited it pretty early on, which would indicate some sort of type of originality is the best way to put it. Um, Because, you know, when you have someone like St. Augustine, for example, St. Augustine is a very mainstream Christian. He is not necessarily going to have, he's not going to cite an obscure text and consider it as a part of a gospel. He's going to be pretty faithful to the tradition. So for me, this isn't a big deal. Um, This is one of those stories that is inspired, in my opinion, is a part of the Gospel of John, in my opinion. But if it's a part of the Gospel of Luke, I'm not going to lose sleep over it sort of deal. Um, This is very fascinating, though. Um, Many different people, um, such as Origen, will say, Origen is an early Christian as well, will say that it is an interpolation, which is something that is placed in between two different places that is not necessarily authentic. This is an example of one of those trickier questions to solve, though, and that's why I like to bring it up. So, I hope that answers your question in a good way, but let's not be afraid of the Bible. I think many of us could spend some more time in the Bible and that might be fruitful for us to move forward. The next question that was asked to me is, Hannah, where do you see apostasy beginning in the Bible? This is actually one of my favorite questions to answer because there's a very quick location that I like to go to to answer this particular question because I do think that it is pretty early on that we see some apostasy in the Bible. Uh, We all know how apostles are chosen. So apostles are chosen by the power of God, right? We know that they'll pray and the prophet will try to decide who an apostle should be, that there is a lot of deliberation, but that ultimately it comes through inspiration, not necessarily through other means. But let's go to Acts. Let's go to Acts 1. So Acts 1 is after is after Jesus passes away. He ministers for 40 days after his resurrection. And they're, they're scrambling to try to choose the next apostle, right? Because we all know that Judas, unfortunately, betrayed our blessed Lord. And they need to pick the next one. And I will say, just as a side note, The fact that they felt like they needed to pick another apostle is a great apologetic for the belief that Jesus actually did restore the church in a very particular way, that Jesus did want the 12 apostles as a part of the church. A lot of people will try to suggest that he did not want that, but it's very clear to me within Acts that the apostles seem, seem, it seems so natural to them to want to pick another apostle that to me that's an indication that Jesus told them that they should because they were trying to preach the gospel according to the way that Jesus told them to. So I think that that's a really great apologetic within the New Testament for um, suggesting that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is true, obviously, because we believe in prophets and apostles. We believe in apostles after Jesus Christ, um, which is a belief that many people do not hold and clearly there is this body of the 12. They're not just merely apostles. There is this governing body of 12 apostles that seems so integral to them that they pick the next one um, almost immediately. So I I do think that's something to keep in mind when we we read the New Testament too, is that you're going to find these nuggets of wisdom that to me suggests that the church is true. And it's really important to pick up on these because you can use them to explain the gospel to other people. One question that I like to ask, especially Protestants and Catholics, is so if Jesus did not necessarily want 12 apostles, why does it seem natural that they pick another apostle almost immediately? Why do they have a vacancy there 
because a lot of people will try to finagle this by saying that an apostle means just someone that is sent out from Christ. But clearly, clearly there's a set of 12 apostles here that they're trying to fulfill. So you can't really make that argument that cohesively without having to kind of fudge it a little bit. So I think that this is a great apologetic is basically what I'm trying to say with this. And I would pay attention to this section. So we're just going to read this section and we're going to talk about why there is this example of a little bit of apostasy. We're in Acts 1 and we're at verse 20. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his habitation be desolate and let no man dwell therein, and his bishopric let another take. Wherefore of these men which have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John unto that same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. And they appointed two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Thou Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, shew whether of these two thou hast chosen, that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they gave forth their lots, and the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is interesting, because there are a lot of ways that you can take this. Obviously, they clearly do pray about this, and I'm not negating that, but I have had professors point out to me that, yes, they pray about it, but they still end up picking based on lots. And of course, this is a common thing within ancient times. And we see lots. Where else do we see lots? We see lots when Jesus Christ is being crucified, that the soldiers are auctioning off his clothes via lots and things like that. But to me, this is an example of misunderstanding the process of God. We don't use lots to do, to, to proclaim apostleships nowadays. This was a common within other cultures, and we see the lots within Jewish culture too, casting lots um, does happen within Jewish culture. And um, this is called clemency. And this is a way to just to claremontcy, sorry, claremontcy. And this is a way to discern the will of the Lord. You have in Leviticus 16, God commands Moses saying, and Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. But here's the thing, even though lots were cast anciently by Jewish people. This seems to be something that is a part of the law of Moses that is not necessarily relevant to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it seems that there is a misunderstanding with this process. We know that there's a misunderstanding with this process because we no longer use this process. So for me personally, the way that I read this section is that we see a very early example of the apostles being a bit confused about how to proceed. We see that they don't necessarily understand what is happening, which is totally fair because Jesus kind of came, told them what was up, and then he left. And they were left to figure out a lot of different things, and they were not perfect at figuring out these different things. And we, we see throughout the New Testament, we can even go to Paul. We see within Paul that Paul struggles to determine whether or not uh, circumcision is required of believers. He eventually comes to the determination that if you're Jewish, it is required of you. But if you're not Jewish, then it is not required of you. But there's waffling around about this. And then he's and then the consensus afterwards is that you don't need to be circumcised in order to be considered a Christian. We also see that there is a lot of confusion about where where you can sit, what meat you can eat. Can you eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols? There are a lot of questions about these particular things, and these questions need to be answered. Um, so I think that these, to me, are early examples of apostasy within the New Testament that to me shows the need for restoration really early on. And one document that I think is particularly salient for describing this idea a little bit, it does not talk about this that much, is called Y1820. Um, Y1820, I believe, 
was given at BYU-Idaho, um, formerly known as Rick's College by Hiram W. Smith. And he talks a little bit about um, why there needed to be a restoration. And this is an example of a reason that there needed to be a restoration. Again, this is my own personal opinion. This is not necessarily church approved is the best word for it. It's not church sanctioned. There we go. I. It's one of those things where we can have differing opinions on it. Because the revelation for when the apostasy began has not precisely been given. This is just what I have determined throughout my studying of the New Testament. So that's the answer to that question. The next question is a bit more of a lighthearted question. And the question was, Hannah, what's your favorite gospel and why? My favorite gospel is the gospel of Luke. Um, This is not surprising if you know me because I love Greek and I, right, I studied Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, and, uh, and Coptic as well now. Coptic is also very fun. But when reading the Gospel of Luke, one, the Greek is quite beautiful within the Gospel of Luke. It's People say that it's second only to Hebrews. But I, I actually think the Gospel of Luke has better grammar than Hebrews. I think it is a more beautifully written book than Hebrews, personally. Though, content-wise, I know many people like Hebrews. I just love the Gospel of Luke. I mean, I love all the books within the Bible, but particularly the Gospel of Luke has stood out to me. Um, So, the actual grammar of it is one particular reason for that. But another reason is I really like Luke 22, verses 43 to 44, and we're going to read them really quick, and then we're going to actually talk about an interesting fact about these verses. And then after that, we have two more questions, and then we'll have to wrap up for today. But this has been a very fun podcast so far, and we're moving quite quickly, which is great. And I'm excited to have more conversations with you about the Bible and about various other texts. I just want to take a moment, just a brief moment so you can recollect yourselves. I want to take a brief moment and let you know that if you want a podcast on a particular topic, reach out to me and we can do it. I would really like to do a variety of different subjects. I'm planning one on Doctrine and Covenants. I'm planning one on the First Vision accounts. I think that that one should be very interesting. But let me know what you want to what you want to hear. I'm willing to do a whole lot of things. I think a Gospel Topics essay series will be very interesting. That's something that will be in the works. Um, but let me know. Email hseariac at fairmormon.org for you to give me your ideas. So back to the gospel of Luke. So Luke writes in Luke 22 verses 43 through 44. We read this awesome set of verses. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. I really, I just like that verse a lot. But then we continue on um, in in verse 44, we read, And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. We've talked about these verses on the podcast before, but I want to take another minute and kind of rehash a little bit, but expand a bit, because we've talked a bit about today the way that manuscript traditions work. This particular set of verses, 43 to 44, is found in about half the manuscripts, and then in the other half, it's not found. So the question is, is it authentic? And then to make it even more complicated, this set of verses has hapax legomena. Hapax legomena is a fancy term for words that only appear once within a corpus. This doesn't just have one hapax legomenon, it has multiple. And the reason that this is interesting is because a lot of the time when you have these hapax legomena, you will assume that if it's something where there's a 50-50 split, that this acts as a piece of evidence for not including the verses because the author doesn't use these words in other instances. And particularly with Luke, we have a great body of what Luke wrote, right? We have Luke, but we also have Luke Acts. Um, Luke wrote Acts, just for your information, Acts of the Apostles. Um, But I actually personally think these verses are authentic. I think these verses are authentic because of manuscript evidence and also because of the thematic quality of them and also just because Luke is known for being a bit fancier with the vocabulary and a bit fancier with with the grammar. But I really like these particular verses because of a Carl Block painting. And this is a little bit tangential, but I think it's really important um, to explain exactly why it is that I really like the Gospel of Luke. 
There's this painting by Carl Bloch called Gethsemane. Please look up this painting by Carl Bloch called Gethsemane. It's one of the most beautiful paintings um, that you will ever see. I also like Franz Schwartz's Agony in the Garden. I can't decide which one I like best. Regardless, this depicts the instance where an angel comes and strengthens Jesus. But I will say... I hold to the opinion that this angel is actually the angel Michael, better known as Adam. So I hold to the opinion that Adam comes down in this instance and strengthens Jesus because Jesus, right, is called the new Adam by Paul and is considered an Adamic figure in a lot of senses. Not that he is, you know... Not that Adam is as cool as Jesus or as impactful as Jesus, because he's not. Jesus is obviously our supreme lord and our sovereign king. But at the same time, they do fulfill a similar role. Um, they foil each other. So I do really like the idea that this is Adam. And I I use as support for this the swords within the Garden of Gethsemane and the swords within the Garden of Eden. If you pay attention, there is an instance in the Garden of Gethsemane where an apostle tries to smite the ear of the centurion servant. And Jesus says, don't do that. The sword is put away. And then we see that there's the transition into the atonement. The atonement continues, right? We know that the atonement begins in the garden. I like this idea because you see that swords are guarding the the Garden of Eden so that a flaming sword, cherubim and a flaming sword are placed outside of the garden even so that people don't enter. I like this imagery and I think it works as a sort of parallel to one another to suggest that when Jesus says put away the sword that this symbolizes the sword in the Garden of Eden being put away because you can enter the presence of the Lord again through the atonement of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of reasons why I like the Gospel of Luke. Those are just a few of them. And I appreciate that you have come this far. We have two questions left before we wrap up for today. And the questions are a bit more lighthearted than the questions that we have been answering so far. One question that was asked to me, which I find a very interesting question, was what is the weirdest experience that you had when reading the Gospels or when reading the New Testament? This is a good question for me because there is actually one instance that I read and I didn't realize actually happened, if that makes sense. You know how there's some there are some certain things that you don't remember when reading the scriptures? This was one of the ones that just never registered in my brain, but it exists. So I'm just going to read it aloud to you. And I've done this with a few different friends. I've asked a few different friends about this particular instance within the New Testament. And I've been like, hey, do you know about this instance? And a lot of the time they say no. So this is in Mark 14. So we read, and there followed him a certain young man having a linen cloth cast about his naked body. And the young man laid hold on him and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. So basically, there's a naked man who just kind of comes in within the Garden of Gethsemane. This is a very confusing thing. I actually just didn't know that this happened until I was reading. I was reading this for a Greek class three years ago, and I came across it, and, and I was like, "This is this is very odd. Why why is this in here? And I don't remember this." So we're gonna talk for a second about what this actually is. So. We are not necessarily sure, but this is one of the ideas of it. So this is supposed to be sort of a metaphor deal where the fugitive, the the naked man running through represents the disciples. The linen cloth is Jesus and the young men around them are the Roman soldiers. So this whole idea is connected to... um, A later verse in Mark where there is a young man dressed in a white robe. So this perhaps is an allusion to that. We're really not sure why this is in here. This is not paralleled in any other instance. That's our best guess is that it's kind of a precursor to that particular instance. But this is just something... This this acts as a little lesson, right? That we can learn something new from reading the Gospels, from reading the New Testament, from reading the Hebrew Bible. And we can gain some more truth from it, right? Because I didn't pick up on that. 
And there are going to be things within the scriptures that stand out to you in different places. And I, I just find that this is really one of those things that's a little bit comical, a little bit, it takes you back a little bit. You're like, huh, wait, I didn't remember that. And, and it can help you to pay more attention to what it is you're reading. And the last question about the Bible, which is probably my favorite question. I like saving the best for last on this podcast. I really like that because I know a lot of you actually do listen to the very end. And this is a a little bit of a longer podcast, right? We have shorter attention spans than we did before. But the last question for this podcast episode is, what is your favorite scholarly observation about the New Testament? I have a very definitive answer on this one. I really like the illusion within Luke, um, the illusion to uh, Hannah and Elizabeth. So Hannah and Elizabeth are two different figures, right? We have Mary, the mother of Jesus in the gospel of Luke, who becomes pregnant with Jesus and then meets up with Elizabeth and they have this connection moment. And Mary considers herself a handmaid of the Lord. And this is a direct intertext with First Samuel, when Hannah prays. And there are a lot of reasons why I like this particular instance, because it it really shows how Jesus was portrayed as a prophet in a lot of instances, but grew up to be much more than a prophet. He was more than any of the other prophets, but he's positioned as a prophet. But it also shows an example of women having a very impactful role upon their sons, right? Hannah is a very interesting mother. Hannah promises to the Lord in 1 Samuel 1 and 2 that if the Lord will give her a son because she is barren and um, she's she's one of many wives and she she's barren and other, other people are having kids, she is very upset, but she promises that she will give up her son if the Lord gives her a son. That's what's what she says. And then the Lord gives her a son. She gives up her son very willingly and prays a very sincere prayer when she's asking the Lord to do this and talks about how she is the Lord's servant. And I really like this language, especially when we think about the suffering servant language in Isaiah 53, that there's this idea that we all suffer as servants for the Lord, that we all give ourselves to him. And I think Mary perfectly embodies this instance. I really like all of the intertexts with 1 Samuel that we see throughout the entirety of the New Testament, particularly with the figure of Mary and the figure of Elizabeth. I will admit bias. My name is Hannah Elizabeth, so I do really feel a connection to Hannah and Elizabeth, and I I find it very interesting that there are allusions to these two particular figures within the Bible. That's my favorite scholarly observation. My second favorite scholarly observation, because I've talked about this one, I've talked about the first one before. My second favorite scholarly observation about the Greek New Testament. Your Greek New Testament is probably within the Gospel of Mark. This is a very broad observation, but I actually view the Gospel of Mark as a series of notes. I like thinking about how the grammar doesn't seem completely polished. I like seeing that there the narrative moves along very quickly. He uses ethuis, meaning suddenly or immediately very frequently to move from section to sh- section. He jumps rather quickly in order to do that. I would really like you to look into this. I think that this is a very interesting intersection into New Testament scholarship. This doesn't mean that, you know, the Gospel of Mark is worth any is worth any less. I think it actually shows that it's worth a great deal because we're able to see what God can do with a narrative. And I like that there's these different narrative styles. You have Luke, which is more polished. You have Mark, which is a bit more abrupt, a bit more brash. You, you just have these different narrative styles that clearly serve a purpose of working in harmony with each other to bring together a complete gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's it for today on the Bible segment. Because we're so behind on questions, I want to just do one more of our question of the day sort of things. So this question is a very fun one. And I I like thinking about this one because I actually thought about this one while I was preparing today, I thought about the concept of it, then I remembered that this is a question I could answer. The question is, what was it like transitioning from Catholic theology to Restorationist theology? Specifically, in terms of deification, considering that's a problem that a lot of Catholics have with the church, was it easy to accept the new doctrine? So I'll first answer the first part of the question. For me, it was a little bit of a challenge to transition because 
I actually do admire a lot of Catholic doctrine. For me in particular, I liked the prayers around divine mercy. I really liked the prayer, the Marian prayers. Those are the prayers that are like the Rosemary that all center around the figure Mary. Really liked those prayers. I liked the doctrine around Mary. I liked the dogma around Mary as well. They're, they're two different things. I, I liked also the doctrine of the Trinity. That was one of the ones I did like. I, I was not one of those people who thought that the Trinity made no sense. I thought the Trinity made some sense, um, but clearly the Trinity is not correct, and clearly the Godhead is correct, and that was one of the, the leaps that I had to jump over. So for transitioning, I would say that it was kind of difficult for me, to be honest with you, and it still is a little bit difficult for me. My friend will point it out. He very frequently will point out when I have sort of Catholicly, Catholicy Latter-day Saint ideas, if that makes sense. There will be instances where I'll speak in a particular way or I'll have not a central belief, most of my, uh, not most, all of my central beliefs at this point are Latter-day Saint beliefs. A lot of the way that I interpret scripture, though, still has some of its Catholic roots. I'm still a little bit influenced by Catholicism. And this friend will point it out and be like, hey, Hannah, that's pretty Catholic of you. Let's examine whether or not that's correct, because just because something is Catholic doesn't mean it's incorrect. That that's not how this goes. Truth can be found anywhere, but we still have to examine these things, right? So for me, transitioning from Catholic theology to restoration and theology, restorationist theology was pretty difficult because I there was a lot that I didn't understand. I, I felt like I had a very Catholic-oriented brain because that's what I spent a lot of time reading. That's also why I spent a lot of time studying too. I didn't study restorationist theology with the same amount of vigor as I did Catholic theology, purely because we don't have the same sort of structural theology that Catholics have. Our theology really comes from general conference, it comes from the general discourses, it comes from prophets and apostles writing books, but it's not precisely a theology so much as I think it is an explanation or an explication of particular scriptures and other things like that. A theology is a particular genre, and I think that Catholics have a much more robust theology. They also have a much more delineated theology. Latter-day Saints have beliefs that I think you have to have in order to be Latter-day Saint, right? We have to believe in particular things, but these are not as clearly spelled out um, as I would say that Catholic beliefs are. I'm not saying that they're not clearly spelled out because I think you can, I think you can deduce what they are. I'm not one of those people who thinks that uh, who thinks that there are a variety of different positions you can take on major issues. I think there are a variety of different different positions you can take on minor issues. Not so much on the major ones. I'm pretty, I'm pretty set in my ways on that. But obviously, if the church tells me to change, I'll change. If Jesus tells me to change, I'll change. That's just been my understanding. So I would say that because the Catholic, because Catholic theology is so much more clear and more robust than ours, that that also made it very difficult for me because there are very few theological sources that I could go to to discern what exactly I needed to believe as a Latter-day Saint. But I will say at the same time that that happened, I found myself being a very, I guess, traditional Latter-day Saint, Orthodox Latter-day Saint, insert whatever word you want to use there very early on because of the way that I read scripture, because I have a very strict reading of scripture. I believe in exegesis as the main source for scripture. I'm not a big fan of critical theory um, being superimposed upon the scriptures at all. Actually, I, I reject critical theory pretty wholesale for that. Um, I, I'm a very traditional scholar too, is the best way to put it. Um, I, I really believe in a very traditional classical approach. So, mixed answer, but in some ways yes, in some ways no. A lot of restorationist theology made more sense to me than Catholic theology naturally too. While I was hardwired to look at a text and find Catholic theology within it, restorationist theology made sense to me on a logical level, so that's why I accepted it. The second question was about deification, and I actually had a big problem with this, and many of our Catholic brothers and sisters do. The reason I had a problem with it is because I thought that it was pretty prideful 
to assume that I could become like God. That was really the source of this belief. It wasn't necessarily a scriptural thing because I was aware of the scripture that says that Jesus did not find it to be robbery to be considered equal to God, right? That's a that's a pretty poignant verse. And I was pondering what it meant to be a particular of the divine nature. And for me, that's not something that I can just read and assume that means that I will be a beatific individual. It doesn't, I don't read that and go, oh, I'll be an angel. For me, a particular of the divine nature very clearly has to do with godliness because of the structure of the language, the use of the word divine in other places, just the way that it, it, the entire thing is framed, I think, in order to, to convince you that that's what that means. I, I don't know how to read a, I just don't know how to read that verse in a different way. I don't think there is a other reading of it that is exegetically borne out that makes sense. So when I read that verse and as I pondered that verse, but I also as I pondered the idea of feeling prideful for assuming that deification could exactly be a thing. The conclusion that I came to was that a God who loves us would want us to be just like him. And it's actually, it's kind of a sweet story, so I'll share it. My mother, my my dear mother, my mother, as some of you know, my mother raised me um, as a single mother for a lot of my life. And my mother is an amazing example to me of someone who is very kind and charitable and a very amazing person. One thing that my mother always said to me was that she wanted me to be better than she was. And this is something that touched me very dearly, very deeply, that my mother wanted me to be better than she was. And as I approached the scriptures, and and granted, this is not me speaking exegetically necessarily, though I will say this is borne out exegetically. This is a personal experience. As I approached the scriptures, my understanding of love was transformed by the way that my mom loved me and that my mom still loves me. I saw love as wanting the best for your child, wanting your child to be everything that they could be. And for me, I don't see how God could love us, but not want us to be like he is. And I think within omnipotence too that that's within god's power right that's that's the point of the atonement to me is this highest form of love is to become like he is that's what that's what love for me is and then in the garden of eden we see that there's the potential to become like god and i I just firmly believe that that is a very important aspect of the scriptures When I read the scriptures, even though I was struggling with the idea of pride, for me, it was flipped on its head very quickly, where I saw that because I wasn't the one doing it, because I wasn't the one who was making myself God, because it was through the atonement of Jesus Christ, my concern about pride went away, and I realized something very profound, is that if there indeed is an atonement of Jesus Christ that does work for our sins, the opposite of sinful is divine. I think that was the dichotomy that I reached was that it was not merely that God would take away my sins because we are promised so much more than that. We're promised sanctification. And for me, the only way to cohesively read the scriptures in harmony with each other in particular with verses about divine nature, is that we will receive exaltation if we, through the atonement of Jesus Christ, are cleansed. That's my personal perspective on that. I want to close today's podcast just by issuing a couple reminders. Um, One of the reminders is feel free to email me any questions that you have, any podcast ideas. Send them straight to H-S-E-A-R-I-A-C at fairmormon.org. I also want to just remind you of something that I remembered this week. This week, I remembered there is a lot of strength in prayer. And I just feel very impressed with to share with you 
this week to remember to pray, to remember to spend a lot of time thinking about our Father in Heaven, to spend a lot of time thinking about Jesus Christ and establishing that relationship. I know it's a very tumultuous time right now, and a lot of us have very deep worries and are going through a lot of very deep trials. It can feel very difficult to find any inner peace because of everything that's occurring. And I would just remind you to spend some time praying every single day and to focus on that and to have that be what carries you from day to day. And that's one reminder that I wanted to issue. And the last reminder is to please subscribe and share this podcast. We have had a great reaction to this podcast. A lot of people are really enjoying it. We want to make it even better, but we also want to just get the good word out, to just get the good news out about it. So please share this podcast with your friends. I would be very touched if you did. Share it with your family and know that I love you. I care about you a lot. I'm praying for the best for you and I hope that you are able to find a lot of joy in Christ. Thanks for listening to Fair Voice. This is Hannah Syriac signing off for today.